I think looking for ways to try and stay awake, we would we would tend to do these races around the atrium. Yeah, so it's just crazy stuff like that. And I, I remember one time we did that and one of my friends, I won't say who it was, crashed through the second ear wall. He just started going left, veering left and went straight through the sheetrock. And it was just his legs like <laughs> hanging because that second ear wall has a lot of depth to it. So he like literally disappeared into the wall. Good morning and welcome to Sorry I'm in Studio, a podcast delivered to you at the most productive hours of studio, 1 a.m. Sunday night. On this episode of Sorry I'm in Studio, we have with us alumni of the COAD and now practicing architect and professor of the University of Houston uh, College of Architecture and Design, Jason Logan. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes. So excited to talk to you today. One of the questions a lot of us on the podcast team had was, as an alumni of the COAD, what was one of your favorite late night studio memories that you have? <laughs> yeah, that's it, it's hard to, to really just isolate one. Um, so I might have to give a few. Um, but uh, I mean, I think many of them involved, of course, being up there late at night. Um, and it was a bit different when when I was in undergrad. Uh, there wasn't the restrictions on sleeping there, living there. Uh, we, we really did uh, sort of sleep in the building. We showered on the fourth floor. Um, you know, I remember when we were in first year, I had Duke Fleshman and all of my studio mates and I, we just drove over into the third ward and found a, like the cheapest couches we could, you know, and we would just sleep up there. Um, and and so it really became a kind of culture of, um, at the time I was living uh, at home and, and with my parents. And so, uh, but it, I almost didn't need an apartment because I would literally pack a bag, go up to school and Monday through Thursday, basically um, live there um, and then come home on the weekends, do some laundry and, and go back. Um, and so with that difference, I think, you know, um, late at night, uh, you, you're tired, but you're trying to stay awake. And that's when all the the sort of creative, fun uh, experiences would happen. Um, so I don't know. I mean, a few of them would be like, uh, I think of the ones that, at least the stories that I can tell um, are, uh, and this one actually, I feel like we should keep. We, we had developed um, an atrium swing where from the fourth floor, as you know, the, the fourth floor kind of overhangs the rest of the the atrium level so it's yeah, it's yeah. kind of a square opening on the fourth floor so by getting uh long ropes we could hang a, a swing from that level and then you could take the swing sort of up to the landing of the first run of stairs and jump on it and then by swinging off from that point you could almost go about two-thirds of the way across the atrium and back and do this like massive swing and and that I always felt like it was such a fun thing to do I mean I, I when people are kind of moving through in and out of the atrium during the day you you probably wouldn't be a good idea to have that there but it sort of activated it um, in the evening and 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 most of the things that were really fun and memorable were about kind of activating that space when you needed a break from from studio so I remember like of course this was before uh, the lockers that are up in the studios were there. Um, we had lockers, but it was more about storing your supplies and they were old. And so the doors were coming off of them and they were metal doors that were probably, I don't know, maybe 18 or 24 inches wide by four feet long. And we would get them and use them like a, like a snow sled. Um, and you'd get at the top of the stair and you'd shove off riding the, the metal uh, lid and of course you'd hit the landing and depending on how fast you hit that you would either catch air as you went down the second one or you would hopefully not you know uh, sort of lose it right there at the landing 
Um, and then you would kind of cruise down the last one. And then the trick was always like how to stop before you hit the walls that are, you know, built in there. Um, so there was a lot of late night um, uh, sledding off of lockers. That was memorable. Um, I remember with, you know, everybody would always bring in their own drafting chairs. Um, and uh, and so uh, I think looking for ways to try and stay awake, we would we would tend to do these races around the atrium where um, I don't know who came up with it, but we just discovered that if you sat in your drafting chair and leaned over and then turned your head to the side um, and then you had a group of uh, it was teams and you'd have a group of people that would spin you for 30 seconds that just like when you spin in a circle standing up, you know, the fluid in your ear and the equilibrium makes the world look like it spins kind of around you when you stop. By turning sideways and, and leaning over, it would do the same thing, but the fluid in your ear would be spinning either um, sort of, uh, you know, fr uh, from your feet, you know, over your head or in the other direction, depending on the way you spun. So, so we would spin everybody for like 30 seconds and then stop the chair. And then each team had to get their team member up who was now completely disoriented. And the world would be like, it would look like the floor was like rotating over your head. It was spinning vertically instead of horizontally. Yeah, yeah, because you've made the fluid spin vertically, you know, either forward or backwards in, in, your, in your ear. And so then you'd have to do a lap around the atrium. Um, and then, you know, and then it was to see like, you know, so it was just crazy stuff like that. And I, I remember one time we did that and one of my friends, I won't say who it was, um, crashed through the second ear wall. The, apparently the stud spacing on that wall is, is maybe greater than 16 inches. So he literally lost control because he couldn't run straight. And he just started going left, veering left, and went straight through the sheetrock. And it was just his legs, like, <laughs> hanging. Because that second year wall has a lot of depth to it. So he, like, literally disappeared into the wall with legs coming out. And, uh, of course, I'm sure we got in trouble for ruining the sheetrock. Um, I think we tried to just, like, slide one of those big dry erase boards, you know, in front of it and, uh, and pretend it didn't happen. But I'm pretty sure Lannis or somebody came and... Uh, yelled at us but um yeah it was just you know tons of mischief but good mischief fun mischief we tried not to break too many things um and and it was always a rule you could just like never fall asleep first if you were the first person to fall asleep of course then things were gonna gonna happen to you so um you know i remember we we rolled a guy out who had fallen asleep on something with casters. We literally got him into the, into the uh, elevator. Elevator went down, rolled him out into the middle of the atrium without him waking up. And then at one point, while we were all working late at night, you could hear him, you know, like waking up and kind of like completely disorienting, not knowing why he's just sleeping in the middle of the atrium uh, by himself. Um, so yeah, it was just lots of, lots and lots of fun. And many stories like that and and some that are probably i i shouldn't repeat because we were probably breaking some rules but um studio, studio culture at full force yeah you know I, I i think that's uh one thing that um you know certainly in this covid context is something that uh, uh i look forward to when we yeah. can all get back up there um so that we ha can definitely, have more stories definitely. like that and Another question we had was, what what do you wish you knew as a student that you've learned now as as a professor and as a practicing mm -hmm. architect? Yeah, um, I guess as a as a student, um, I would say, you know, I wish looking back that I would have known to have been a bit more balanced um, in terms of my education. Uh, I, I was. I was a pretty awful high school student, to be honest. So like, uh, you know, I was just, um, I, I didn't have a discipline then and, and sort of it, if it, if it interested me, so my art classes interested me, soccer interested me. Um, and you know, I was good enough in math to where I didn't have to do too much studying and homework and I could do okay there. But if it didn't interest me, I, I didn't do very well in it. And, and so to be honest, like I was really concerned coming out of high school 
about how I would do in college, um, especially sort of being away um, from family. And so, um, so you know, when I made the decision to go to U of H, it was it wasn't this kind of inform super informed decision. I mean, it was it, I got lucky and it was serendipitous because it's such a great program, but. Um, but it, it had as much to do for me about a concern about if I went away to school with sort of the crowd I was with in high school or whatever, that I just would do, would perform terribly. And so, um, and so, uh, in fact, kind of a funny story with Lannis is that, um, I show up on, uh, orientation. So this is like days before school starts and, when you get there, they want, they wanted us to write, you know, declare our major. Well, I mean, you could write undecided at the time, but I, I felt like I should put it down. And, um, at that time, my real interest I thought was sort of illustration and I had done some sculpture in my art classes. And so I, I thought maybe art, but, but I also had this idea that I, I, I couldn't have a career with that. So I needed to like pick something I could have a career with. And, and I'd always liked the idea of architecture, but I'd also always heard these horror stories about how difficult to, you know, like the, the hours it took and the difficulty of it. Um, but I think my parents had encouraged me since I had to declare to go down and talk to someone at the architecture building and, you know, see what I thought about maybe doing that. Cause they, there wasn't a, uh, a kind of, there's a graphic design program in the art, uh, you know, uh, building, but, but there wasn't, it wasn't its own major. And, and that's what I thought I might want to do. Anyway, the point is, is that, um, I come in with a portfolio of stuff that I had from my art class and, uh, and I, I literally got a meeting with Lannis. This is a few days before the semester start. And, and I was unaware that there was this whole application process that you had to do sort of in advance. And so I had this meeting with him and he asked to look at my portfolio and, um, and I had won some awards in high school for, uh, you know, doing a commercial through, um, PBS and, and some things like that. So I was able to show him all this stuff and through the magic of Lannis, you know, who knows what, what that is, but you know, he just kind of went away for a while and then came back and it was sort of like I was in and that, I mean, people may hate, uh, who I went to school with may have hated to hear that because it, it shouldn't be, I guess that easy, but, um, but I was able to somehow demonstrate with the portfolio and the, uh, and some of those awards and, and the magic of Lannis that, uh, that, that I could get in. And, and it was, I, I credit the program honestly with, um, uh, it, it is the one thing that really affected like who I am today. I think it, it, it really, um, both because as a freshman, what's unique, I think to the architecture program is that you start with things that are in your major immediately. And for me, I think that was really important for me at the time because I was not very good at being focused at things that were sort of outside of my, uh, you know, my immediate passion. And I think if I would have gone into another major that would have required me to take a bunch of just required, you know, basic courses before I could jump into the, the thing I was really interested in, I probably wouldn't have done as well in undergrad. And um, that coupled with the fact that U of H is, and at that time was such a diverse program, you know, diversity of, of student body, of people, of ideas that it really transformed, I think, who I was as this kind of naive kid, you know, coming into the program, um, you know, having grown up in sort of the suburbs of Houston. And so, um, so I really do think it, it, you know, it sort of transformed me. And then when I got into, um, when I got into college, uh, and this is, I guess, getting back to your question is that I, I wanted to be, um, because I had this, I think, paranoia with, uh, would I be successful? I channeled all that energy into studio. Um, and I, I look back on that and I really feel like, you know, I wish that I had have, um, focused on some of my other classes that, uh, the things outside of, um, of studio, uh, are so, in, could have been so enriching to that experience. And I, I probably, well, I know that I, I put so much focus in the studio that I was doing what I needed to do to sort of get by in my other classes. 
um, but it maybe uh, uh, you know should have been a, a bit more balanced. And uh, I mean, one other kind of funny anecdote would be that when I applied for the study abroad program, which at that time was um, uh, it, it's it's not the same as it was today. We had a program in France uh, in Saint. Um, that uh, was the kind of study abroad program that everyone went to. And, you know, as I was writing my, my letter um, of in interest or intent uh, for getting into the program, I guess Nora Laus was reviewing them, right? Um, so Professor Laus is reviewing them. And I, I, you know, I was far from like a standout student because, again, I was, I was sort of too narrowly focused on studio. Um, and I remember that at the bottom of my letter, I, I guess I had written a decent letter because she wrote, how did you make a B minus in my class or C, you know, whatever it was that I had made. Like she wrote, like, how did you make this grade in my class? You know, uh, which, you know, looking back on it, I, I was like, oh, you know, like she was definitely calling me out and, and, and rightfully so. Like I, 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 I look back on that and I really wish I had. I had been more balanced and, pay, you know, and, and done, uh, you know, because now like some of my cherished documents are, I had this reader from John Zamanik who used to teach uh, one of the history theory courses. Um, uh, I took his postmodernism class and I did okay in the class, but I still to that day pick up that reader and find, you know, so much from it. And I just, you know, so I do wish that I had kind of, you know, pulled more out of, you know, Professor Laus and, and others who I probably didn't um, focus enough on when I was uh, in school. So I do I do think that if students can tear themselves, and I'm saying this as a studio instructor um, from the studio, that I think you'll be a better design student the more you um, you know uh, bring in uh, the other uh, experiences and opportunities and classes that there are um, you know available to to you as a student. Yeah. I think that's great advice and I think like you're right it's it's easy to get caught up in the intensity of studio mm -hmm. but it's good to have that reminder to to kind of you know absorb everything outside of it as well I think uh, we all can can try to do better in doing that yeah and since since being a student and now faculty of the co-ad how has it changed in your experience mm -hmm. and in your eyes since you were a student in the late 90s, early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways it's changed so much and in others, like it, it hasn't changed that much. I would say uh, probably how it's changed is more interesting. Uh, so I would say like the big things would be, and I already talked a bit about the, the sort of, when the, the university sort of cracked down on students sort of living and sleeping in the building, um, I think that's one major change because we we truly did kind of live in that in that building and um, uh, and uh, you know so I, I get why they they uh, have to um, why they've cracked down on it but but I do think that that's one thing that I always thought was so fun about it. Um, honestly, I don't know that it's changed that much because I, I I think just the difference is is that now everybody goes home to sleep and we would just you know sleep. In the studio, um, but um, but it did sort of I think encourage more uh, being up at school all the time. Um, but the, I think the other major difference would be that I was part of a, the generation that started to switch from a completely analog way of working and designing and using the computer. So uh, when I started up through. Uh, it probably was maybe spring semester of my third year. It, everything had to be by hand. Like, um, and even when you got into the third year where I started using the computer, it was as much by choice. I wanted to use it as a part of the tool. I think that there was no, there was no uh, requirement that you had to use it. Right. But, but this seemed like a new tool and like something that I should be using. Um, to enhance the the work that I was doing, so um, so I think that was a major shift. That, that had I wanted to, I probably could have made it through all five years without ever using the computer. I don't think that would have been a good thing, um, but 
but uh, but it was a it was I was right on that cusp of a generation that was either you know pre using the computer very much in studio and then um, a, and then now where you know you you have to and you sort of take that tool maybe at some level to um, well you just assume it's it's fundamental and needed um, and so uh, I think that's changed things. You know, I think we can lament the the sort of loss of some of the things that used to be required when you had to construct a, a drawing and you know all of the all the skills that sort of come with that. Um, and, and and I think it's important for the students still to learn that. And, uh, and 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 we're sort of having that discussion and certainly grappling with that in foundation. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's important that that we get those tools, but but I think it's also important for us to be aware that the reality that we will ever like draft or construct a drawing in an office environment is very slim, you know? And so I think we need those tools to help us visualize and to help us sketch and to still help, you know, hand drawing is still a very necessary tool, but I think we also have to recognize that you don't, you won't be doing that. You know, it, you know, we don't train, accountants, um, to use a slide rule any, anymore, you know, so like, uh, you know, we have, we have, you know, tools yeah. that are, uh, um, what we will be using when we get out there. So I think drawing, you know, the way I'm, I, I'm sort of imagining it is that it becomes a kind of shift towards understanding how to draw so that you can visualize and so that you can sketch and, and still valuing the hand drawing but but really jumping into the digital almost immediately so that um, we can develop that as a fundamental tool and you know so that we start to see that tool as a pencil you know uh, as well yeah yeah and one thing one thing I was wondering as well was how did you start teaching so young at the age of 24 almost right out of college yeah it's uh um I mean I think it it was well one it, I was part of a unique group that at the time was allowed to teach um, without having a master's degree which is not possible anymore once the university went to tier one um, that was a kind of switch that they made but um, it, it, I, I think at the time this the sort of idea and the intention and what was really you know positive certainly from my perspective about it um, because I benefited from that, was um, it gave the opportunity to people who thought, you know, this, had this idea like, I think I'd like to teach. Um, but before you went and sort of committed yourself to getting a master's and, and that investment, you could teach. What was allowed was that you could teach um, 1,500 and uh and even up through maybe 2,500. Like you could do basically what was called then first year and second year. And, uh, and the way that the university looked at it was that as an adjunct, you would be using your professional experience as a way of sort of, um, uh, I guess, justifying a kind of visiting faculty or, or adjunct faculty position. Um, and so... Um, yeah, so so that allowed me to teach really early, uh, which is probably unique to to many people. And um, and so I was I, I knew right away um, just because of the of the professors that I had. You know, I had I, I like I'd said I had Duke Fleshman uh, my first year, and then I had Robert Griffin my second year, um, and then Dietmar Froelich and Ronnie Self. You know, so many of these names are, are still you know. Uh, a part of our program and, and, uh, Bruce Webb, who's, who has, uh, retired, but, um, uh, but you know, the, all, many of these professors were professors who both had a practice and were, were teaching. And that seemed really appealing to me from very early on. And so I'd sort of formed this idea that I might be interested in that. Um, and I was just fortunate enough right after school um, I, I think I maybe first participated in the program that Drexel Turner runs over the summers. The, the, at the, the time it works. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time it was called high school discovery, I think, but, but yeah, it was like basically what Wonderworks is. And, and so I had done that 
and, and had always expressed to, to uh, Professor Griffin that I would be interested in teaching. And at the time, he was the coordinator of second year. And when an opportunity became available, he helped me. Uh, I think he talked to Lannis and helped me get, I started teaching in 1500 and then moved up to 2500 um, and then did that long enough for a few years to decide, okay, I want to go get my master's. And that's when I went to get my master's degree. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that I've almost taught for 20 years now. Um, wow. and, and I'm, you know, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting older. I should quit, you know, trying to think that I'm not old, but older, but, um, but, uh, but I think for someone, you know, my age, the, to have almost taught for 20 years is, is, is not common. Um, and, and so that is certainly a kind of unique, uh, experience that I've had. Yeah, it, it really is. And I I went to Wonderworks and it, it changed my life. Like oh, I I loved it. It was a big, big moment for me. Yeah, it's such a great program. And we get so many, you know, great students through that program. So I, I think it's a real asset. Yeah, it definitely hooked me on U of H. I was like, yeah, this is this is I have to go there. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. And speaking of your master's, uh, mm -hmm. like a lot of students, even myself, um, are asking themselves, should I get a master's? Like when we're thinking about our future and like as a graduate of Columbia, that's that's really awesome. Um, with a master's in architecture, what's your perspective on students getting a master's and does the financial burden like equal an equivalent amount of opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, you know, I always... Uh, tell students who who ask about the should they get a master's i think it is highly dependent on your situation and what you you envision you want to do so because you know with a bachelor's of of architecture and because we have an accredited five-year program you don't need a master's um, uh, to practice um, and so the master's degree then bec becomes the degree you would want to get because there is something very specific that you're trying to do. Otherwise, I would say, no, you don't need to make that investment. It's a, it can be very expensive to go back to school um, and, uh, and not just, you know, going to a, a program like Columbia. Any graduate program is, is going to uh, be a uh, you know, a cost burden for, for someone wanting to go back. So is it worth it? Right. And so, um, I think in my case, because I knew I wanted to teach, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Right. Um, yeah. so, so I think in that circumstance, yes, you, you know, you're going to have to go back to school. Um, I, I think other scenarios where, where it makes sense are probably, there's probably a couple situations that you could think of. One would be there's, you know, the, undergraduate bachelor of architecture experience is meant to be um, quite broad and expose students to a, uh, a broad range of experiences within our discipline. Um, a master's degree could be an opportunity to specialize and, and to focus. And so if there's something that you are really interested in that you want to then uh, continue studying in, and you think that, that, that focus or that specialization would have value to you, you know, and bring value to you outside of um, uh, that program, um, then I think, you, yeah, you could begin to make that calculation that I need to go back and specialize. Um, I think the other, um, the other, you know, possible scenario is one in which I think at some programs there are particular faculty who, um, and maybe it's because they have, you know, an internationally recognized practice or they're uh, a well-known writer or historian. But but if there are moments where you want to um, gain a kind of connection to, uh, um, you know, whether it's a firm or, like I said, a historian or, um, you know, because of what you want to do in your career, there could be value in going back to a program where you know those individuals are. And by being their student, you get a kind of exposure to, um, you know, uh, to a group of people that would be hard if you were just like, let's say, sending an application from Houston to a practice in, you know, wherever, L.A., you know, East Coast, uh, Europe, you know, wherever, um, that it would be hard to, to maybe get as much um, 
exposure and, and, and it'd be much harder to get the foot in the door. But if you go and, and you become their student and you excel, you know, as their student, then the, the opportunity to, um, you know, to work with, you know, a, a writer or to, to go and practice in a particular firm, I think is increased. I think it's, it's definitely true that a lot of offices out of particular grad programs tend to pull from their, their best students to then, you know, hire them as interns in their, uh, in their offices. So, I mean, I, I don't know that that gamble justifies it, but I, I certainly think that if you were inclined to, and, 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 um, you know, could, could sort of make that justification that it is a great way to expose yourself to certain, uh, you know, offices and groups of people that may be where you would want your career to go. But I, I think the two definite, you know, reasons to consider going back would be because you want to teach or because you want to specialize in something that a program offers. Um, otherwise, I don't know that there would be a real reason to make that investment because you can do everything in the field you want to do, get licensed with the you know, five-year bachelors that we have in, at U of H. Yeah, that's awesome. That that I think that's going to help a lot of people make that decision and get more informed. And uh, I was wondering, like your your current position at U of H, you're the foundation's head. What has that been like, and what's been your experience with the challenges of this year and involving the curriculum? And how are you guiding the faculty and students to help them overcome these challenges? Yeah, good. Also a good question. Um, I mean, it's been, uh, the experience has been generally, you know, great. It, uh, um, I mean, of course, it's been, it's had all of the challenges that you, you've mentioned, but I think mainly the, the, the experience has been positive. I, I, you know, I have to say because of um, the, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize the, um, the the sort of group of previous coordinators who preceded you know me taking on that role. I mean, there was such a uh, a long-standing history of of great involvement from you know Meg Jackson, Lannis, and you know there, so there was already such a good um, you know foundation structure there, and the team that had been sort of the team of faculty that had been assembled was so strong. Um, and, and so it's been really um, a pleasure to be able to work with that group and, uh, you know, and, and to start developing some of the new uh, projects and so forth that, that we've been working on. Um, and, and it's been a, a really great sort of collaborative effort. And so I've been really privileged to uh, to be able to work with that group, and we've had an opportunity to bring in some some good new faculty. Um, uh, so, um, you know, I think the what we've been looking to do is, uh, and, and you know, I, I would say it was also um, uh, this conversation was also sparked through the the open letter that that you know the students you know that you all wrote um, uh, over the summer and the conversations that we had over the summer about how we could begin to improve the program um, and, and the sort of necessary uh, changes that needed to be made um, that, that this whole kind of conversation uh, sort of uh, emerged about how can we begin to, um, to think differently about some of the projects and, and to begin to develop new projects and, you know, how can we, uh, diversify our faculty, and, you know, and I'm keenly aware of the fact that I'm not helping that, right? So, so, um, so uh, but, but I think, you know, um, we're, we're looking to, um, you know, continue to bring in a great diversity of faculty and, um, and, uh, and also, I think, a kind of inclusivity in terms of uh, the kinds of projects that we're doing. So, I mean, if you think about it, and um, I'm certainly a, a, a product of, of that curriculum and, and those projects. Um, so I think it's very important that we, that we make sure that we understand what are the fundamentals from that that we need to preserve. But at the same time, the, a lot of those projects were very similar, if not almost identical to projects that I did when I was in undergraduate, you know, many years ago. 
Um, and I think that, so, so we know, which is not to say that that's bad, but, but what we know is that at that time we didn't have an ID program. We didn't have an IA program. Um, and so, so we know that those projects were geared for architecture students. Um, and I think one of the main, uh, or kind of first, uh, things that we started to talk about was how can we develop a more inclusive curriculum, um, both in terms of the three disciplines that we have in 1500 and then throughout the rest of foundation, uh, interior architecture and architecture. Um, but uh, but also thinking in, inclusively in terms of our student body, their experiences, and you know maybe a uh, a broader diversity that we could bring uh, to the work. Um, so that's been you know some of the the focus um, at least initially, and it's going to be you know this is very much a work work in progress. Um, but uh, um, but you know I I've. I'm very excited by the the way that uh, the faculty have have sort of jumped in, and that we've been able to sort of collaboratively develop projects that I think are the major shift. I would say is that um, is is a kind of uh, a kind of switch where I think in in foundation curriculum you can either um, try to teach towards a kind of very consistent output. Um, because you're building skills and foundations that then everybody, I think that the, and I think that's what we, we've always done very, very well. And I think part of what we're trying to see is like, can we still maintain uh, a, a rigor um, and within distributing kind of fundamental skills while writing a kind of project framework that allows for more diversity and outcome, you know, so that uh, you know, so that before, like if, if, um, you know, you took a design problem and it was pinned up, there was like this super impressive consistency in like both the outcome and the quality that you would see across the wall. Um, and so the challenge is how do you keep the quality up there, but can we start to see a little bit more of our students in the work? You know, I mean, uh, we have such a, an amazing diversity of faculty and students in foundation that, you know, if you hand anybody a design problem, the idea that you could have such consistency across a wall is is because it's very um, designed into the the design problem that you would get such you know uh, uh, such a consistent output. Um, and um, and and I think what we what we want is is to maintain that from a quality perspective and a fundamentals perspective, but how can we start to see more of our individual student experiences in the outcome? Um, how do they bring their personality or their interests to it? Um, and then also how do we take advantage of the, the skills and the talents that our foundation faculty have, like, so that they can say, I'm really good, you know, at this, or I'm very interested in this. And so I'm going to put a slight spin on the project um, based on those particular interests. So, um, you know, uh, we're far from, from, you know, having figured it all out, but I think, you know, the fact that we've at least opened up that discussion and that we can now, um, be talking about how to develop new ideas for projects and continue to improve it, I think is, uh, you know, an exciting early step. Yeah, and I think a lot of students are really excited that that conversation is happening and really pleased with that. And being a second year, I took the, um, like, I guess the original mm -hmm. uh, first year experience. And uh, I, you know, I loved it. I, I was like, mm -hmm. you know, this is what I want to do. And um, now going into second year, when the curriculum kind of evolved a little bit uh, for our first, for my year's first project, like, actually designing a building like that was that was really exciting and I I, I loved the project and I think it did give us um, more opportunity for to show ourselves in it and I'm, I'm excited for that to evolve even more and um, I'm I'm just really excited that we're all moving forward and really listening to everything in the co-ad and outside and really helping that um, evolve. It's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you say that. I, I mean, I think that 
What I hope is, is that we'll hear more from what you all appreciated about the project and see it as a kind of living, uh, that the project of developing design projects is a kind of living um, work that we have to constantly keep revising, both based on student feedback, but also faculty feedback. You know, I mean, I think we've already had conversations amongst the 2,500 faculty of things that we, after that, project that we think we can kind of do a little differently and it would be great even to hear more uh, feedback from the students to help us in that process but I think the fact that that conversation is happening between faculty and students is what is is really good yeah I think I think it's super exciting and like speaking on that like conversation between students and professors like what what's one of the most memorable lessons you learned from a professor as a student mm, from a professor yeah um, man, uh, you know, I, uh, it's hard to isolate one because, you know, I credit so much our faculty, uh, that I had and the ones that I listed, um, for shaping, you know, um, who I've, you know, how I've developed as a, as a designer, but, um, hmm. you know, I think maybe, uh, this idea of, I, re I remember, on multiple occasions. So I, I won't necessarily associate it with one professor because I'd hate to isolate one. I, like I said, I feel like uh, many of, of the faculty at U of H were, but, but um, were uh, formative for me. But, but I do feel like many of my instructors had this capacity to, you know, whether it was to sort of look at what I was doing and say, well, you know, what if you, uh, I mean, this is sort of a cliche in, uh, uh, studio, but like, if you flip it upside down, you know, like, um, does it get better? Um, and I think that sort of at least spirit, um, not necessarily that it has to be that specific question, but the idea that you would intentionally ask, you know, could it be otherwise just to see what it means? It, it doesn't guarantee that it'll be valuable or that it will be better. Um, but the the constant instilling of a kind of curiosity of, well, what if we just did it differently um, is something that I think many of my professors instilled in me. And I would say even like I remember specifically, this is not a professor, but a, a colleague from when I was in grad school that it, it resonated with me that he he would intentionally do. So I guess the way to say this is like if he had to do a drawing, he would use a program or use a technique that was not intended for drawing. So he would render it, you know, or he would do whatever. Um, or if he needed to do a rendering, he would like intensely draw it, um, you know. Um, and and so he would always do the thing you weren't, use the tool you weren't supposed to use to do the thing. And um, and it's, I remember that always resonated with me. I mean, it's not necessarily the, the technique that I prescribe to, but it, it certainly I'm uh, I, I'm uh, a fan of that way of thinking for um, for constantly trying to flip um, your expectations of um, how you approach something, um, just as a kind of exercise to see if you can discover something different through um, you know through uh, kind of intentionally flipping something on its head or, or doing it, you know, uh, misusing something, you know, uh, productive misuse or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Wow. I, I may have to try that. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Um, and for my last question, what inspires you to, to keep designing? Mm. Well, um, I, I think, um, I mean, I think it's in part, it's the, the sort of everyday experience of being able to work with students and creative, you know, colleagues that you see what they're doing and you're like, oh man, you know, like it gives you an idea or it's, you know, uh, maybe there's also a sort of competitive edge. Uh, but, but I think also um, uh, the, you know, what I would say inspires me is often looking outside of our discipline um, that as much um, things that aren't architectural, maybe, um, uh, you know, so I, I mean, I remember as a, a kid, for instance, this was long before I had any idea that I would be an architect, but 
but I still look back on this and and know that there was something sort of formative about um, the time that I had gotten. It was a pair of shoes. Uh, so um, uh, the uh, Tinker Hatfield is sort of a you know a famous uh, uh, industrial designer for Nike and designed many of the famous shoes. And so you know, he's the designer of the Air Jordans, which for me, when I was a kid was like, you, you had to have the Air Jordans. And I really wanted Air Jordans. You know, my parents didn't want to spend that much on shoes for me. So I got the Bo Jacksons. And at first it was sort of like the disappointment of like, I don't have Jordans and my friends have that. But then what, what I became really ultimately fascinated with in the story of the Air Jordan was it was like Tinker's Hatfield's project. The cross trainer was his project to design this kind of hybrid thing, this, this thing that could simultaneously be the, you know, the training shoe that you would work out in. It would be a basketball shoe. You could run in it. You could do everything. And that the whole ad campaign for that thing was in fact, um, based on that because uh, and the reason that it was called the Bo Jackson was he was like the athlete of the time who was the kind of rare crossover athlete who was both excellent at baseball and football. Um, and I think you could say more so than other athletes who have tried it. Um, you know, they're, whether Deion Sanders or Michael Jordan tried to play baseball, but they always were like really good at one sport. And then they were just because they were tremendous athletes, they could also sort of play another sport. But Bo Jackson was excellent at sort of both things. And so he was like the perfect figure for what Tinker Hatfield was trying to accomplish with that shoe. And, um, and I think those kinds of of thing, it, things sort of have stuck with me. You know, it's not it's uh, it's as much the things that are outside of architecture um, that I think I find inspiring. And so I look back on that shoe, and you know, it, it, I see the fact that now I'm I'm super interested in hybridity. You know, like I'm always interested in like how do you take relatively mundane things um, or, or things that are standard and already out there in the world and say, I think part of it is a kind of optimism or naivete to say that I feel like as designers, we can always um, have a kind of healthy, um, uh, what would we say, like uh, a healthy skepticism for things that are already out there and say, like, I believe I can, I can, you know, potentially make this thing a little bit better. And so, um, so I think that's important to sort of have is that healthy skepticism and a kind of confidence that like not believing that you'll absolutely, um, improve something, but that you have that capacity. And so, um, so for me, the, the, that yeah. often comes from sources outside of our discipline. And, and certainly for me, the experience of, of a hybrid is always, um, uh, a kind of method that I've been interested in that has has come from other disciplines. Because if you think about it, you know, uh, music, uh, you know, so many other other disciplines are far more, they're less self-conscious about um, sampling or like taking a reference from one thing and mixing it with another. Um, I think in our discipline, uh, there, there has been a tendency to, to, to feel a need for, uh, what some might call a kind of pure, uh, like an authorship, authorship is kind of this weird thing. Um, because I, I would argue that, that you could make this argument that there is, um, uh, almost, uh, very, you know, that, that there is no originality from the sense of, uh, kind of creating something from nothing that, that even some, one of the most original things that we do is, inflected by our experience, you know, you know, we, we can't approach it outside of ourselves. And so therefore, like, like there, there, it's always being inflected by something. And so I, I also think, and maybe this, uh, would, I, I would, I try to encourage students to get over this concern about like, I have to, to like author this completely, you know, fundamentally originated thing. I, I, I don't mean to suggest that you should, copy or be derivative, but I think there's a way of using precedent and reference, um, as something that can be generative and, and actually advance the, the reference and move it forward. And so again, I, I guess, uh, I'm getting a little bit beyond your question, but I, but for me, it's like, you look outside the discipline, obviously you're also looking within 
Um, but you're, but for me, it's constantly like you're trying to take these things and kind of mix them up and see what comes out of that, that productive stew of ideas. And, and, and that, that by, by kind of slightly tweaking something, you know, it's the, I find there to be a lot of productivity in things that are slightly off because the slightly off sort of has this capacity to, to give you a productive pause and to make you question it. Cause you know, it's, it's no longer the thing you expect. And, and I think that, that moment is, is productive, you know, because it makes you think, uh, challenge your preconceptions of, of what you expected something to be. Yeah, yeah. I think like I I have a like I come from an art background. Like my grandma was mm-hmm. an artist, my dad's a sculptor and like I definitely take a lot of influence from that and like definitely see architecture as like sculpture mm-hmm. on just a bigger scale <laughs> or I would like to or like that's what inspires me and I I think that is really important to look outside of it and to just kind of take away some of the rigidness that like architecture can have and to make it more fluid and like um, where everyone can have their own impact on it individually. And I really like your perspective on that, on taking everyday things and trying to improve them. It's almost like a, an ID perspective. I don't know. I, when you were saying it, I was kind of thinking it of it in that well i think we certainly sense. have all have a lot to learn from one another so i'm a big fan of of id and ia and all of all of our disciplines so i just i you know i i think there's just a healthiness in being a perpetual student and and constantly um like being excited to to see the world differently um at the same time i think what's healthy about the way that we tend to develop designers, particularly in the, in the United States is like, we, we, um, we don't, we're, we're open to the idea of, of rethinking or questioning without having to feel the burden of being an expert. You know, we can, we can kind of live in this generalist territory, um, and, and reimagine things, um, with, yeah, without feeling that, that sort of need to be fully specialized. And, um, um, and I, so I think that, you know, that approach, um, with that kind of, um, the, the productive, I don't know, like I said, naivete is, is a, can be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think so. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was such a joy to talk to you. Yeah, thank and you. Thank you for having me. Story. Yes. So I hope to see you in person one day. In I the know. That would be awesome. I can't wait until we can all uh, see each other up at school. And uh, I'll, I'll look forward to it. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Sorry I'm in Studio, a podcast produced and presented by the Kleistenese chapter of APX. If you're interested in joining us, check us out on Instagram at APX underscore Kleistenese. And follow us at Sorry I'm in Studio on Instagram for the latest graphics and episode trailers.